Hi everyone, welcome to This Much I Know, the Seed Camp podcast with me, your host, Carlos Espinal, bringing you the inside story from founders, investors, and leading tech voices. Tune in to hear from the people who built businesses and products, scaled globally, failed fantastically, and learned massively. Hi everyone. On today's podcast episode, we have Chuck Warner, founder, actually I should say co-founder of Ada Ventures. And um, we're going to hear all about Ada Ventures in a second. But uh, as always, uh, first of all, welcome, Chuck. Thank you. Great to be here. Uh, we're going to kick off with your background. Um, you started off with English Lit. And you know you went on to uh, BBDO and then to a couple of venture funds and then Diversity VC and then of course now Ada. But uh, kind of let's let's find out a little bit why you know you, you started off with English Lit, moved on in all these different really intriguing ways. Maybe tell us the background behind that. Yeah, um, I wish I was smarter and could kind of post rationalize it in a neater way. But um, I have to tell you, tell you the complete truth, which is that um, when I was fifteen, I wanted to be an actress. Um, I was really interested in the theatre. I was sort of persuaded by probably my parents that I, I probably shouldn't do that and should get a degree first. So I studied English literature. Uh, I did a lot of theatre at university. Um, and then again, when I was graduating university, I think I kind of just about missed this tech wave that happened. I went along to the first EF recruitment day that they ever did um, in Cambridge. And I almost uh, applied for EF as a founder, but um, I got a kind of real job uh, before I was had a chance to do that. So um, I joined this advertising agency called BBDO and I did that for a couple of years and, and really enjoyed that because it was a great kind of combination of something creative, but something kind of businessy. And I was always very interested in in the intersection of something creative and and something more um, commercial. And so after having done that for a few years, I think I, I just kept thinking about this technology wave that was just changing everything. And my um, boyfriend at the time was working at Google. And I was kind of looking at what he was doing and thinking, that's quite interesting. I think he's kind of onto something potentially there. And um, I then had this incredibly fortunate moment of meeting someone who was starting a new venture fund um, within an existing um, business called Downing. And I was lucky enough to go and join him and work at Downing um, with him and we um, both sort of spent a couple of years there, invested about 20 million pounds in about 36 com companies. And during that time, I learned just an incredible amount. It was the most amazing opportunity to just get right into deals and just have loads and loads of experience doing deals. And um, that led me to where we are with Ada without trying to tell this as, as too long a story. But um yeah, that was kind of my transition into venture. I can dive into any of those areas if you want to explore them in more detail. Yeah, you know what would be great would be to talk a little bit about how the, the, the lessons learned in the advertising industry helped you with both venture and, and um, starting your own, I guess, fund and company. But, mm. you know, it's always great to look at, even you can't rationalize things in retrospect, but you can still look at some of the lessons learned and how you leverage those what, what were what were those lessons? Yeah, I think there were two in particular. Um, I think one, and this is a sort of, I think, underrated skill and um, sort of, uh, yeah, skill set that many, that not very many venture um, partners have is understanding how ideas are going to play out with customers. Um, and I think that one of the things about advertising that's really interesting is that 
people in advertising spend a huge amount of time trying to understand trends and trying to understand how new product development or new launches or new brands will actually resonate with customers. And that's kind of what we do in venture. We assess markets, we assess themes and trends and what kind of human behavior is going to do. And then we pick uh, companies that are going to execute that um, behavior change and kind of build something to fit that behavior change. And so I've taken a lot of the learnings around analyzing consumer trends into what I do in venture. And I think that's been really valuable. I think the other aspect is that a lot of companies, most companies need to sell products at some point in their lives. And a lot of uh, founders don't necessarily have sales and marketing expertise. So what I found with my experience at uh, BBDO um, is that I was able to help companies think about how to segment their audience, how to come up with acquisition strategies, how to think about how to communicate their, their brand and their product offering in a really clear and succinct and successful way. And that was something they didn't really find they were getting from other kind of maybe finance or consulting um, VCs or from people within their own team who might just be quite technical people who don't necessarily have the background in sales and marketing. Yeah, and th those are very critical elements. And it's actually, it sounds like you really nailed those early and, uh, and obviously been leveraging them ever since. But if we go through the time that you spent with Downing and Seraphim, you know, the, you, you probably had a chance to not only take some of those ideas and, 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 and sort of help founders with it, but maybe if you summarize some of the, every, every single person who works at a fund and leaves it and then creates their own, almost always comes out the other end with like a view of what they would like to do and then what they would not like to do. And so maybe mm. if, if you take those lessons learned from those years and say, okay, well, these are the things that I think I wanted to double down on as part of creating ADA, but these are the things that I perhaps wanted to distance myself without necessarily throwing anyone under the bus. What, what would you say these things are? Yeah, um, I think that there are some some really great things that I definitely want to double down on from that experience. So, um, you know, the first one was uh, investing in lots of companies early and, and doing it at pre-seed and seed stage. When Matt and I first started investing at Downing, um, we found that we weren't really getting that much competition for deals. It was kind of you guys, uh, frankly, and, and, and a couple of others that were investing at the pre-seed and seed stage. And obviously that's changed a lot now, but you know, that was where both Matt and I felt like we had an advantage um, and where we could really help the companies kind of shape their go-to-market, shape their product strategy, shape them, their sort of marketing. And um, so that was the stage I I think we both really wanted to double down on um, with Ada. The second thing was, you know, one of the learnings I think that we had from Downing was, was that every company we invested in had to be a kind of unicorn style investment. And I think one of the mistakes that one can make, you know, is, is looking for things that could be a good fit for a small fund and maybe would lead to a nice kind of small exit, but actually are never going to be interesting to the, indexes and the Excels and the later stage venture funds. Um, and I think that with ADA, you know, everything we invest in has to be interesting to those later stage venture funds. Um, and I think the, the third thing that we did reasonably well, but definitely could, could do better at, um, at Downing was helping companies internationalize and helping companies access the US market in particular. And we had a bit of an unfair advantage about that because um, Matt had spent a long time in the US and, and was based out there and had a good network there. So again, we've sort of taken that forward into ADA and wanted to sort of really build on those three areas. I think 
something that we perhaps didn't do as well, which I think is something we've, we've tried to do much better with with Ada, is um, really build a brand around what we're doing. And I think that sounds very lofty. We're, we're still only in our first sort of three months of investing. Um, so we're super, super early. And I'm, I'm aware of the danger of us falling flat on this. Um, but I think you, you have to have intentionality and you have to have, you have to start somewhere with building a brand. And we have between ourselves a pretty clear mission of what we're trying to do um, with Ada and, and why it's different. Our job is to communicate that to founders and, and other investors. So that's one thing that we're spending a lot of time thinking about and have, have put a lot of work into try to, trying to shape. Well, I want to come back to that. Um, and, and just to help you with, with the question I'm going to ask you down the road is, is around some of the lessons that you learned the hard way uh, during those times. Because I think we all make mistakes in our career. Mm. And it's not just necessarily career choices, but you know, things that mistakes and lessons we learned from it. And some of those you might be implementing today with Ada. But um, some might just be some that you would recommend to anybody who's kind of starting a new fund or or is working in venture. But moving on from um, from your time there, uh, Downing and Seraphim, to the creation of Diversity VC, walk us through why. Like, what was the moment that you said, you know, I want to do this? What was the goal, and what has been the outcome? Yeah. So first of all, it wasn't just me. It was um, myself, Lillian, Travis, Anna, Farouk. Uh, Jules, um, Ben, there's lots of people who've been involved in the kind of founding story of Diversity VC. Uh, but really, it was a collection of us who were working at the time as associates in different funds and felt that there was a gap in no one was really addressing the fact that when we looked around us, when we went to events, when we met founders, when we were in our own offices, in our investment committees, there were just very few other people that weren't white and that weren't male and that weren't you know from very specific backgrounds you know Oxbridge Stanford Harvard etc and we felt that that wasn't right and so we set up this non-profit um with the objective of trying to make the venture capital industry more diverse and the reason why we cared about the venture capital industry was because first of all we we had a sort of point of view on it because we worked in it so we felt we could change it but secondly that it has a disproportionate impact on the companies that then get built. So six out of the 10 most valuable companies in the world started out being venture backed and they employ literally hundreds of thousands of people. And so the sort of early culture and the early philosophy of the people that fund those companies has a huge, huge impact and bearing on how diverse and how inclusive those uh, companies that get built are. So that was what led us to really wanting to, to sort of focus on, on VC and, um, We've done kind of four things. We've done a lot of data collection and published a lot of data on what's going on in, in DNI. Uh, we have helped young people from different backgrounds get into the industry through a, a program called Future VC. Um, we have helped VCs themselves to be more inclusive through sort of practical tools and resources. And we've helped entrepreneurs access capital. So, by the way, I don't know. If I shared this with you before, but um, we're also participants in Included VC. I don't know if you know those guys mm. that are also trying to tackle this issue. But but if we delve deeper into some of the research and, and sort of outputs that you guys have uh, done, um, mm. it'd be great to get some highlights from it, just for for those that are listening and that are not familiar with it. But also, it would be interesting to see what things are counterintuitive that came out the other end. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. So we started out looking at the sort of most easily accessible data point, um, 
which was gender. Um, us as an organization, we look far beyond gender and we think of diversity as a, a sort of intersectional um, question. But we looked at gender in Italy and we saw that um, when we did our first study in 2017, actually half of um, all of the venture funds in the UK had no women on their investment teams at all. And two thirds of venture funds in the UK had no women at all, um, sorry, the senior sort of investment teams. So that was kind of a, quite a stark um, realization of a first data study that we did. Um, we've since gone on to do quite a lot of work looking at different um, areas of, of, um, of diversity in the venture capital teams. Um, so in 2019, we looked at ethnicity and educational background. Um, and I think you know we broadly see the same thing, which is that people tend to come from the same places, so privately educated. Many um, are, are coming from Oxbridge and, and Stanford and Harvard, so one in five you know, come from that background, and um, they're majority white. Um, so it's eighty-four uh, percent white in, in in the sort of self-selected uh, um, industry study that we did. And um, you know that compares to kind of fifty nine percent of the London population, and, and London is the capital of BC in in the UK. So it doesn't show a great picture. I think what's what's interesting and perhaps counterintuitive that came out of that study um, was looking at career backgrounds, um, because when we looked through, through scraping LinkedIn, we found that only four percent of VCs in the UK actually had technology company experience. Um, and, you know, not many of them had um, technology founder experience either. So I think that was kind of probably quite shocking. Um, and probably the most shocking thing that came out of the study was that actually the people who are investing in these companies, you know, don't necessarily have the expertise and they don't have the background always to correctly advise um, the companies that they're investing in. So it sounds like the interesting bit there is that some that the raw material is out there in terms of entrepreneurship. It's just that from the investment side of view, there's a blinders. And so therefore people are trying to fit things in specific molds and therefore like not necessarily seeing how much um, is actually being done by people who don't fit that mold. Is that, is that yeah. the key takeaway? Yeah. You know, I think that that is, I mean, we still don't know anything like enough about sort of how people make decisions and, you know, how and why this data kind of plays out and, and makes for such a sort of non-inclusive technology landscape. Um, one of the things that uh, was really interesting about another study that we did was that we looked at the entrepreneurial community and we saw that in 2017, um, 89p in every pound invested went to all female teams and just, um, sorry, all male teams and just 1p went to all female teams. And that one of the sort of leaders into that was that you're 13 times more likely to get investment if you have a warm introduction to a fund. And these all-female teams and mixed-gender teams just tended to not have these warm introductions. And I think that's true of diverse teams in general. They don't necessarily have the kind of networks and weak ties that tie them into the VC industry. And that means they don't get in front of people. Um, so I'm working on a massive campaign, um, and we are at Diversity VC, to sort of enforce these different kinds of networks and make sure that people are spending time in different networks so that they're not just funding the same kinds of people over and over again. Yeah. And, and did you find that there was any interesting uh, sector breakdown? 
in terms of the founders that got funded? Yeah, founders that got funded or where diversity was more prevalent versus less prevalent. Was there any interesting tidbits there? There were, and I don't have the data to hand, but it wasn't sort of that surprising in that it, you know healthcare was was more diverse. Um, you know, deep tech and life sciences was slightly less diverse. Um, it was kind of along the lines of what you would expect. Mm. And if and if we broke out diversity and tackling diversity in short term versus long term, um, what are the long term things that we need to put into motion today to really harvest this? Because I think the, the short term has its limits, right? Like there's there's some there's a whole bunch of spectrum of people's recommendations on how to deal with things in the short term, but long term is where you really see the fruit of those bearing. And so curious as to what, what conclusions or recommendations for the long term, um, some of the research indicated. Yeah, I, I think a lot of things come back to education. Um, and one of the things that is a driver of so much of this lack of inclusion is socioeconomic um, mobility or immobility, um, which is kind of what we have in the UK and, and across lots of countries in the world, that people are born in a certain set of circumstances and, and because they're not able to get educated uh, to the same sort of level as other people who are born in more wealthy circumstances, they can't ever actually change um, their position in society. And that I think is absolutely horrible. It's kind of a Victorian era. Uh, even the Victorians were probably better at social mobility than we are today. Um, so I think that that's one area. Another area is helping um, aspiring you know, young people who think about entrepreneurship to have a path into becoming founders. Um, and at the moment, there's really no, no paths that exist that aren't just you know, drop out of school and do a Mark Zuckerberg. And I think we need a lot more infrastructure for young people who do want to start companies in the future to help encourage them um, on that path. Um, another area that is a longer term piece of work is, is around inclusion and making sure that the funds that we have and, and the, the tech companies that we have are not just hiring people who are different to them, but are actually making sure those people have a good experience and thrive and enjoy working in those funds and in those companies. And at the moment, we, we're just not doing that. And there are some you know, very short term, very basic things, a lot of funds a lot of companies don't have parental leave policies for example that would just be a very very low-hanging fruit thing to put in place to make parents feel more welcome in the tech industry yeah yeah those those all seem like some of the the, the points that um we, we're seeing some great change in and and there's several countries that are doing it and leading the pack and showcasing best practices there and so maybe this is a good point also to to talk about the foundation for ada and you know, on the tail end of some of the stuff that came out of Diversity VC, you guys decided, hey, we want to start this new fund and give things a go and and take the best lessons from my first half of my career now to go into uh, venture. So tell us how you got there. What what was the rationale? And when did when did it happen? Was it over coffee? What was it? When? Yeah, I mean to me I still look back and sort of pinch myself that I'm even in this position because it I know how privileged I am to be able to do this and I wrote an article just after we um launched Ada talking about that and talking about this sort of stacking of unfair opportunities and unfair advantages that I've had along the way to to be able to do this um it, it also wasn't quite as kind of neat as 
we had coffee and then we decided to do a fund and then it happened um it was let's say a more organic um process than that but it really evolved from as i said at the beginning this shared mission that myself and matt you know have had um so we were both working together at downing and we're now the founding partners of this new fund ada and the mission really is about access to opportunities so it's sort of very much related to the work that we're doing at diversity bc albeit this is about making money financial returns our view is that the venture capital industry currently is only investing in, in a kind of narrow subset of opportunities partly because they are the opportunities that the people um, who are in the industry kind of immediately understand and can immediately identify with and we think that there are huge opportunities that are currently being missed as a result of that and the reason the fund is called Ada is because there was this woman called Ada Lovelace um, who was born in 1815 um, and she you know, died at a young age but was incredibly visionary and an amazing mathematician and sort of polymath and she worked on something called the analytical engine which is effectively the, the prototypical computer and she was never really recognized for the contribution that she made and she was never really given the opportunity to build on that and you know, do great things with technology and innovation and science. And we see her story as being um, a, a huge amount of waste of what, where the world could be if someone like her had been given that opportunity and had been given that backing. And so the fun is called Ada to kind of remind us of people like Ada. We think there are people like Ada out there today um, who are currently being missed, who are currently not having the support and the financial opportunities that they deserve to make their visions a reality. So that was sort of the vision that we united around on ADA. And um, no fundraising process is straightforward. Uh, and it, as you know, is a super slow and kind of messy process. Um, and, you know, I'm sure we made a huge number of mistakes and we're in the process of trying to package those mistakes up and share them with other people to, to ensure that other people don't um, make the same ones as us. So this is maybe a good point to also ask you about the distinction between a mission-driven fund, in, in which case, I, I don't know if you would let me describe data that way, um, versus a social impact fund and the distinctions therein. And how would you differentiate between the two? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I don't know if I'm the right person to have the answer on this. All I can tell you is kind of how I think about it and how we think about it. Um, I think having a mission for any company is really important because, you know, particularly when you hit these really bad times like the one we're in right now, your mission is the thing that sustains you through. And it has to go beyond just, I want to return a hundred million to my investors. You know, I do want to do that, of course, but actually I want to do that through also trying to realize this mission. Um, I think social impact is actually quite a loaded term, which we found when we fundraised you know, put a lot of people off and, and was quite alienating for people or they felt that there was an inherent sort of um, compromise at play there between financial returns and and the impact that you wanted to create. And I think whenever we avoided that language, people understood that we were going to achieve the financial returns through um, the strategy and through the mission we had with Ada. But I think as soon as we started talking about impact, it was a trade-off. It was. It seemed to be a trade-off in people's minds. I think the reason I asked you a question, Chuck, is because part of part of 
seeing if one can make an impact. And by the way, this is something that we struggle with as, as others do is you want to, I mean, you can, you can qualify things, but at the end of the day, quantifying things is probably the easiest way. And hence the research reports you guys have done at diversity VC and, and social impact is one of those funny ones where at the end of the day, you're, you're, you're seeing a change, right? You're saying, I want to see a change in society this way, whether it be democratization of services, accessibility, um, diversity, and, and, it's 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 interesting how much uh, people are put off by the term, and yet mm -hmm. at the same time they want to promote the very things that the term encapsulates. And so mm -hmm. it's kind of how do you find that balance between um, doing that versus not doing that? And also, there's pools of capital that are available for those that are willing to inherit that term versus not. And and mm -hmm. and I, maybe if I know I'm a bit sort of making more of a statement than a question, but if if you were to, if you were to fix that dichotomy, what would you do? What what? How would you? How would you enable there to be an, an equalization between that negative bias towards social impact by the very need of the very thing social impact drives for? Hmm. Um, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, <laughs> again, I'm not sure if I'm the right person for for fixing this. It's a huge problem, um, and I think until we square that circle i don't or, or make that you know whole i don't think we can really move move this conversation on um so i think it's, it's fundamental that we we try to reconcile those two things the the language i found really helpful um when talking actually to impact investors is this idea of a mission lock so if you have a mission locked company you have a company where doing more of of what the what makes the company successful achieves more of the impact um, so I'm now not going to be able to think of a good example. Andela, um, the education company, um, which is backed by Mark Zuckerberg and others, the more that they um, provide education to future developers, the more revenue they generate, but also the more impact they, they generate in terms of giving people the opportunity to be socially mobile and to get um, jobs where they'd be, be paid more. So I think that language is very clarifying and it's, stops there being this misconception about some kind of trade-off or some kind of oh your socials pulling you in this way and your commercials pulling you in that way um so you know i think that's one one part of it i think the other part of it is possibly that these kind of separate pools of capital that call themselves impact almost should be i think you know combined into the main pool of capital because actually my own view is that every dollar or every pound that's invested should be about trying to make the world a better place. I don't believe that we should be trying to fund things that contribute to climate change or poverty or you know these massive global problems that we've got and you know we've made it a very explicit part of our um, investment agreement with our investors that we will never fund anything that contributes to any of, of the world becoming um, a more inhospitable place like climate change. So I think for there to be separate impact pools kind of calls into question, what are you doing with the main body of funding then? And why wouldn't that also be about trying to make positive impact on the world? Yeah, and, and that's and it's probably like a bigger question than the two of us can answer today, but it is a trend, right? It is a trend. You're mm -hmm. seeing more, um, for example, like uh, companies like Nutmeg offering social responsibility portfolios that, that didn't exist five years ago. And so how you define social responsibility is a separate question. 
But the fact mm -hmm. that this is becoming more mainstream might ultimately point towards the convergence of those two pools of capital rather than being two separate ones with one being more of a charitable outcome and one being more of a financial outcome. But it's, it's mm -hmm. good promising things. But moving to founders, what mm -hmm. trends are you seeing in terms of what founders are? I know that there's been waves of uh, entrepreneurship where there's been a mission and, and that has been tied to from a revenue point of view, also to like a social impact view like mm. the, the poster child of this is like tom shoes you know but but moving away from dtc businesses and into more software businesses and more enterprise businesses what are the trends that you're seeing right now in terms of what new companies are and what uh, founders that are coming to market today are they more attuned to this are you seeing more of this happening yeah i i am i i think you know, just on that tom shoes example i think that that was one of the things that is a bit misleading because actually on that example even though every pair of shoes leads to another, they buy another pair of shoes, actually them creating more shoes and just doing better doesn't actually achieve more of the mission. They're doing something else separately. So I think you know, what I, I'm enjoying seeing more of is more companies where the core proposition of what they're doing um, is actually achieving the impact. So I think WageStream is, is another kind of good example mm. of people being at, able to access their salary earlier means they're less likely to be in, in poverty and less, less likely to sort of go into debt or, or be using kind of lending, short-term lending. Um, so definitely think this is a, a major, major trend. And I think it's going to become, become quite unusual in the next five years to meet founders that don't have a point of view about what their mission is. Um, mm. I mean, even earlier today, I was on a phone call with somebody who's been a founder and has been very successful and has kind of stepped away from the previous business because they wanted to do something which had more impact. Um, and I, I, I think that that's really, really exciting. It's definitely exciting for a fund like ours because that's the kind of founder and the kind of company that we're trying to fund. Mm. Well, you've made four investments to date. Congrats. Yeah. Um, maybe you want to talk through some of the the core of what, in your words, the core of what they're doing. Maybe you want to talk about what commonalities they have in terms of the core of what they're trying to drive change in. Mm, yeah. So two of them have not yet been, been announced. So I'm going to try and do this sort of dancing on ahead of a pin thing of not mentioning them whilst talking about them. Um, but two of them have been announced. So I can talk about those. And but I guess more broadly, the strategy with Ada is about investing in um, these huge kind of demographic changes and, and trends that are sort of 10, 20 year demographic trends. And thereby, you know, we think that there are these kind of overlooked markets in those trends. So that they're, they're not yet sort of fully played out and explored by the people. So the three sort of key trends are aging populations, um, the world becoming more globalized and, and more diverse. And the third is uh, people under the age of 23. And so how how the generation who's now Gen Z um, are going to be living kind of 10, 20 years in the future. So the two sort of first investments we made are um, tying into the sort of latter part of those demographic um, shifts. Um, the first one that I'll talk about is, is a company called Bubble, which is a babysitting marketplace uh, and childcare marketplace. Um, so this is a company which connects um, childcare on one side to parents that want short-term flexible childcare on the other. And um, it's a, a trend around uh, the rise of uh, women working, um, millennial parents being more and more comfortable with booking um, 
childcare as long as it's trusted through an app. And it's a company that we are really, really excited about because it is filling a huge chasm at the moment. There's, there's, you know, a lot of parents will tell you there's, there's very few good options for finding vetted, reliable childcare quickly. Um, so that's one investment. Um, the other one is in the sort of more, um, well, both under the age of 20 and aging population sort of trend is that it's a uh, e-commerce fulfillment company um, called Taboo, and it's based in Bristol. And it helps small retailers to do all of their fulfillment. Um, so it has a kind of proprietary software system um, and it does all the picking, packing, packing, labeling, everything you can imagine related to uh, fulfillment apart from the actual delivery. Yeah. So those are the first two. Nice. Well, we look forward to hearing the others when, when you can talk about them. So revisiting a question that I, I told you I was going to ask you mm. earlier, which is the biggest mistake that you look back on your career and think, damn, that was a massive cock up, but I've learned so much from it. And it's now fundamental to some of the assumptions that, that I do right now. Any that you'd be willing to share? <laughs> Um, I'm so many, it's hard to pick any individual one, but um, I think in general, in venture, there's, you know, a, a huge sort of mistake that, that it's very easy to make, which is, first of all, being intellectually arrogant and thinking that, you know, that, you know, best or that, you you know, something. Um, secondly, in being too scared to say when you don't know something. Um, and I, I've definitely fallen into that trap um, a lot. And I think it's it's just a terrible thing. Um, it's just a terrible way to be with, with founders. And it's just much, much better to just say up front, if you don't know something or you can't help with something. You know, I don't have many, many years of experience. You know, I, I'm still very early in my career, really. So there's a lot I don't know about. And I think you can only really build trust and relationships when you share your own um vulnerability so that's one um another one is about over communication um i think there's a power dynamic in venture between the, the the vcs and the founders and it's much harder to be a founder and particularly if you don't get information from that vc and i'm still working on this and i'm still not perfect at it but trying to constantly update founders with where you're where you are and where your investment committee is and make sure that they know where they stand is essential and is something I've been really guilty of um not doing before and I think that also extends to portfolios sometimes you can foresee something going wrong or being an issue you're talking about it internally you don't share it with the with the founders and you inevitably then have that conversation with them six months afterwards where it's now too late they've run out of money you're not supporting them as a fund and it's incredibly unfair on them. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's, there's lots and lots of mistakes like that, but a lot of them kind of come back to communication, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with that. I think probably the biggest mistake that I've, I've made has been in that same bucket and teaches you loads when, when you look back on it. Well, to wrap things up, I always like ask a couple of sort of unrelated questions. Um, the first one is, and I know we've talked a lot about diversity, so you you know you you can you can give another answer to this one if you'd like. But it's like we 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 look back at some of the things that humanity's done over the last hundred years. You know, think about slavery or something like that, and you think, wow, how did we let that happen as a society? 
What do you think 50 years in the future we'll look back on today and think, wow, how did we let that happen? Yeah, a few things. I mean, I'm sure you've heard this question before and, and had you know, the sort of um, vegetarianism or, or eating animals answer, which I I agree with. I'm not a vegetarian, but I, I can see why in 50 or 100 years time, that's going to look completely barbaric. Um, but I think for me, it's back to what I was saying before about education and lack of lack of advancement. Um, people kind of are still born into situations and, and totally unable to get out of them. And I think that's just completely wrong. And I think in the future, where you're born and you know what your passport colour is and you know, you know who your parents are will not have the same bearing as it has today on your future um, opportunities. And I think it just has an absolutely disproportionate bearing on those opportunities today. So I hope yeah. I hope that that changes. Yeah, no, I, I hope so too. That that is a very there is a key point there. All right, so last one, um, superpower. So if you could be one of the Avengers characters, which one would you be, or which superpower would you like to have? Okay, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna probably get judged for this, but I don't. I'm not, I'm not a Marvel uh, fan. Sorry, <laughs> so I'm not really an Avengers watcher. But I think. Um, I I think it would be I don't know if this is one but one of the things that I um you know I've talked about just now but it, you know is communication and is the ability to speak to people I think so many problems could be avoided if we could just communicate better with each other so something about reading people's minds would be would be amazing um Charles Xavier having huh? that is that the one yeah he reads everyone's minds okay powerful powerful Okay, that's the one. Mm -hmm. There you go. Well, there I'm you go, guys. <laughs> Check. Thanks so much for joining us. Really great to chat and hear your story and, and the future for Ada. Um, how can people and founders get hold of you if they, if they want to get in touch? Just check at adaventures.com. Um, emails on our website. Um, and I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn and all sorts of other platforms. All the usuals. Get in touch. Yeah, please. Cool. And so with that, guys, uh, thanks for joining us. Bye. Thank you so much for having me. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and leave us a read with your thoughts on our show.